This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Horselink. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. In this episode, I'll chat with Raul Bross, who has both a farrier and veterinarian at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital, has a unique position in the foot care industry. Of course, we're going to talk about the two professions, but Raul will also talk about growing up, showing Pasifino horses, as well as how he manages tough cases. But before I chat with Raul, I'll talk with Misty Plinus, who's going to give us some advice on using electronic payment services in a farrier practice and how it might benefit your cash flow. Maybe by offering clients the option of paying by fingertip on their smartphones, you can cut down on those late payments or those no payments. This might be that intersection of client service and what works best for your foot care practice. Okay, Misty, thanks for joining us. And, you know, I think fairy is a very traditional practice these days. You know, uh, so many years gone by and it's much a, a pencil to paper approach to business. And more clients are doing business digitally. It's everybody has a smartphone. Uh, it's a digitized world. What advice do you have or what are your thoughts on farriers, I guess what I might say, digitizing their business to be more uh, connected to their, to their clients? Certainly. The studies that we've looked at and what we're, what we're seeing, you know, just people in general, you know, want to, less than 10% want to pay non-digitally for, for services and, and, and goods, uh, you know, across the board. People are looking to pay, you know, with a credit card or, or through some other, you know, funds transfer process, but they don't want to pay one person this way and pay another that way and get this and, you know, they, they'd rather have that in a central location and, um, and be able to, you know, manage uh, as much of their, you know, the different aspects of their life, including their horse life, all in one, in one place and as simple and as quick as possible. Um, they don't want to have to, you know, pick up an invoice at the barn or dig through their junk mail to find the, the invoice that, that you emailed to them, you know, three weeks ago. Uh, they they want to be able to just pick up their phone, see what their, you know, what services were received and, and just be able to, you know, one tap pay for things. You know, it's, it's, it's an ever changing world and everybody's busier and busier, it seems. We get technology to, to keep things easier and, and it, it makes everyone's lives uh, busier as well more into the day. So being able to do that as simply as possible, we're we're definitely seeing, you know, the trend that direction. It was 48% of the industry was, was being paid uh, digitally uh, last year, and they're seeing a trend closer to 59% this year. So just, you know, 10%, over 10% growth just in one year, moving more towards digital payments. And I have to imagine that it's not just a good client service, but fairs are going to find uh, better cash flow for their business. They're going to be able to collect much sooner than, say, the pen to paper. Oh, certainly, uh, and that's exactly what we've seen with the clients uh, that that are using Horselink. Is that accounts receivable time is cut in half or less? And I know that's a big area for the farriers. I know farriers that that run, you know, forty thousand dollars at a time in accounts receivable, which you know that you know money hanging out there is is money lost to the farriers themselves. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of fairies have longtime clients who are used to paying cash or, or check. And uh, if they want to move them to digitized payments, what, what advice do you have for that conversation and building it into 
uh, the cycle of business? Certainly. For the, the generation that is that is used to paying with cash or a check, it's hard to move people off of what they're used to doing. But I think the main thing to point out in that conversation is, you know, the, the security of the system that, that you move to. Whichever system that is, here at Horselink, we've taken that extremely seriously. We utilize a company called Stripe that manages those payments, and it is as secure as you can get in this day and age. So none of the payment information is actually housed on your phone or in an app. It's actually housed in the back end, you know, digital fortress to store that information because you don't want to be keeping your client's credit card information stored however you, you might store that if you are, you know, say running credit cards through a, like a bank or other type of thing where you actually store it on your phone or on your computer. There are actually laws, Europe has already passed some privacy laws that, that keep you from being able to do that. And I think a couple of states are already have legislation in the works to adopt that. So being able to hang on to other people's credit card information is going to get much harder in the near future. What do you think is the biggest misconception around digitized payments? That's a good question. Um, I would say that's twofold. One from the farrier side or the service provider side is that they will always have to pay big fees. That's how Horselink works. Those fees are absorbed by your clients. It's kind of tacked on, kind of like how, you know, what you pay Uber is not what your driver gets paid. That's how Horselink manages those. When you go, when you utilize, you know, like a bank or some of those others, the fees that add up, there's a variable fee, there's a fixed fee, there's a monthly fee. There, By the time you add all that up, sometimes you're paying upwards of, you know, 8 and 10% on the transaction, whereas Horselink's been able to make that a flat fee and pay those fees for the farriers out of that. And the farrier gets their full rate. They don't have to worry about those, those service fees on top of it. Misty, let me uh, give you a scenario. Say a farrier has provided service, the client has uh, used Horselink for service, and uh, maybe a few days later, no fault of the farrier, there's an issue with the horse and uh, the, the uh, client has a dispute. Uh, Horselink isn't there to arbitrate, the money's been turned over, is that correct? Yep, that, that is correct. But once the farrier gets paid through Horselink, you know, the, the money is theirs. Any disputes that come up would have to be handled outside of Horselink and outside of the app, any type of resolution. You know, I'll put you on the spot, you're in our upcoming Farrier Business Practices Success Academy virtual mm -hmm. conference, and you have a lot of experience in equi-management, equi-business management. People are going to be able to attend this virtual conference and be able to see these sessions later if you're listening to this podcast, say, a year from now. Give us one of your best tips that you see elsewhere in, in equi-business that, that farriers should consider adapting. I would say the biggest thing that I see in the horse industry in general is running your business like a business. And I'll, I'll get into some details on that. So I have my, my, you know, my day job, what day job is CPA, working for the largest accounting firm in the world, auditing, well, I audited IT systems, but seeing how businesses run, you know, in the Fortune 100, Fortune 50 type companies, and then seeing how businesses run in the horse industry, you know, night and day difference. And I'm not saying that any business in the horse industry needs to have the type of business functions that a Fortune 50 company has. However, there are just some, you know, business practices that the horse industry has kind of shied away from, including understanding what your, your revenue minus expenses equals profit. And looking at that, you know, incorporating both your variable expenses, you know, in the farrier world, you know, what are the shoes? What are the pads? What are the, you know, where your tools cost? And your fixed 
cost? What do you pay for, you know, gas fuel each month? You know, what do you pay for, you know, some of the other things? And determining is what I'm charging profitable? Is what I'm charging fair to both me and my clients? But, you know, making sure that, that you're, you know, running it as a business first. And, you know, a lot of people in the horse industry, you know, are doing what they love because they love the horses and they love what they do. But one of my biggest tips would be for people that maybe you're not numbers people because you're, you know, you have other, many other skills. But if you don't feel like getting into the numbers, you know, utilizing people that do to make sure that your business is running as best as your business can run. Thank you, Misty. That's a lot of helpful information. And we'll look forward to seeing you at our virtual conference. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you, Misty. And Misty will be joining us for our first ever virtual conference, the Farrier Business Success Academy, this November. You can find out more about this free event at AmericanFarriers.com. We're going to have several presenters give some top business advice. And Misty will be pulling from her experiences as a writer and consultant on some of the best practices that she's seen in other equibusinesses that farriers should consider. And now we'll visit with Raul Bross, who will first tell us how he got into horses. And I always say this story because it's obviously it's a true story, but what happened, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico with Pasofino horses. And as everybody know, they're highly susceptible to laminitis. Well, my entire life, I treated horses' feet without even knowing about laminitis. And what I mean with that, I was treating my own horses, horses that were laying down because they were painful, horses that were having recurrent abscesses. So here I am as a young kid taking care of horses, uh, packing their feet almost, you know, lost the best broodmares, lost the, the best stallions from laminitis that I didn't even have a clue what it was. So, and obviously in Puerto Rico, nobody at that moment was, you know, performing those kind of practices. So I went to the States and went to vet school and everything. I wanted to be a surgeon and um, I did an internship in surgery in the clinic. And I hear over the intercom, you know, somebody paging any available help, please come down to podiatry. So I start going down to the podiatry just to hold horses. And uh, while I was holding horses, um, I start watching what Dr. Morrison was doing and I start picking apart what, you know, and I kind of, something that just hit, you know, he was treating a lot of the laminated horses. And then I realized that there was a passion in me that it was natural because I was just, you know, my entire life I've been dealing with it. So that's kind of, I got really hooked up into the whole podiatry and, 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 you know, most of my work was treating laminated horses, you know, with time. I felt like it was fair that if I was gonna claim myself or, or specialize in podiatry that then that I need to know how to shoe horses as well, just not doing the laminated horses. And that's kind of when I went the, the route of, you know, uh, training as a fair as well and went to fair school with Mike, Mike Wolnestein and Cornell. And that's when I went ahead and, and I, after doing one year under Morris and treating a lot of the critical cases, decided to step down and actually picked up on one of our fairs that, that Aaron, Aaron Gigax, a really good friend of mine that it's in Switzerland now. Well, Aaron was traveling around the world doing sport horses. So I said, 
can I apprentice on their errands so I can actually shoe horses and not, you know, I, I thought it was fair for the industry, but if I did that and, and that's kind of how I just got involved and, and, and I tell people all the time, it, shoeing horses is so hard. I wouldn't be doing it if it just didn't come natural to me or if, it, if I didn't have the passion for it. But I guess that it was just something that got engraved on me as a, as a kid, yeah. you know, many years. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, we, my my broodmares and my stallions were just, you know, the cubital oversills in, in, in their hips and laying down, not even being able to walk and sloughing off their feet and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and, and that's kind of how the, the whole vicious cycle started. And I just got hooked into it. Yeah. Can you talk about the Pasofino breed? And I don't think it's one that we really get exposed to a lot here in the States. Yeah. It's quite interesting because... When we talked about Pasofino, if you ask me, especially being from Puerto Rico, I'm specifically talking about the, the real name of the Pasofino, which is the Puerto Rican Pasofino horses. You know, we argue and we debate and we, we, we discuss with a lot of people because then you have also the Colombian Paso, um, you know, that some people tries to put the Pasofino on it, but that's more just the Colombia Paso. It's not the foregated. The real Puerto Rican Pasofino horse is a horse that is born, you know, foregated and, 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 and it's natural for them. And sometimes this is uh, something that with, with other breeds of, of Pasos, you know, not necessarily Pasofinos, but everybody tends to generalize, you know, when you have the, the Colombian Pasofino and all that, it's uh, some of these horses you have to actually train them to be able to do that that four gated step so Pasofino horses is a breed that um that it's quite quite different i should say because you know it's a very tiny horse it's a very small horse they don't you, you're not supposed to call them ponies because they'll they'll take it they'll take it offended because they're no ponies they're a horse if you ask the the owners of Pasofino horses but it's uh it's a very um hot blooded horse very very difficult to work with i'm not saying they're all like that but my experience has been that you know it's a very hot horse that you know the gated horse and it is a tradition in puerto rico it's a culture we show pasofinos and it's a pride thing and obviously with that it has grown to other things and it has become a a business for for a lot of people but more than anything else it's, it's more of a cultural traditional thing that we have with the pasofino horses in Puerto Rico, which is most of the horses in Puerto Rico. We obviously have the race horses, we got the trail horses, but it's funny though, because a lot of these trail horses have been mixed or bred with the Pasofino horses because they're so comfortable to ride with that people prefers to get that gated horse to be able to trail with them because they're that comfortable. And, and not only that, but um, quite stoic as well too. And, and will go for, for long rides without having any issues. So. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the, the pathologies that, that you see and seem to be more inherent with them? Yeah, I mean, the, the main pathology, I mean, remember it, that you have to keep in mind that it's a small horse with small feet. So uh, you're not going to have as many of the normal, typical uh, pathologies that you will have with, with our warm blood or a race horse and, and obviously the discipline and, and the gait is different. But, um, the, the biggest problem that, that I have found out, it's obviously the laminitis. I mean, and the thing is that it's, it's, uh, it's a horse that is known for having a, a nice thick posture of the neck and everything. So a lot of times, you know, it's a horse that, that they're all 
most of them will fall into the equine metabolic syndrome type of horse. But again, you bring that up into the horse owners and, and the first thing that they tell you is you're wrong because it's kind of like the Andalusian horse, like the, the Spanish horse as well, that they have big neck, crusty necks. So a lot of times they think it's it's a trait, which, yeah, it is to some extent, but they also uh, are extremely prone to to laminitis and not only that but also the ds the the, the suspensory dysmitis that they have uh, uh, something that is being inherited and genetically through through a lot of them and, and i have experienced that with my own horses too um where that's the two most common things that i have found found with them um you know laminitis and 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 the dismidrists of their suspensories where, where they're dropping the fellows all the way down to the ground, even up to a point that the hawk will be flexed forward and not backwards, which is quite dramatic. Uh, that's the main thing. The other thing, you know, they get their regular, you know, thin soles and all that kind of stuff, but they don't have as, as many issues as, as a bigger horse because there is a small horse with a small feet. So those are, you know, I don't work uh, too much with them when it comes into shoeing or or anything like that um, besides when when they have laminitis but uh, your regular older pathologies I wouldn't be that much familiar with them because honestly I haven't had any more issues with them than just mainly the laminitis and up to a point that you'll notice I'll take radiograph of a horse's feet of pasofino horses that are performing well and doing really really well and you'll take radiograph and a lot of them will have low-grade chronic laminitis that will go notice or or even not treat it because um, these horses are performing and showing with with no signs of problems up to that point that the rotation is too much that becomes a problem but uh, you'll be surprised how many of these performing horses being equine metabolic and we were listening to to Van Epps and we're talking about that you know just with a little bit of that insulin they'll just have a little bit of rotation that that will go and notice and that I think that I will almost bet that a lot of these Pasofino horses have low-grade chronic laminitis that, that we're not aware of because they are not showing you clinical signs for it. It's a pretty big deal, to be honest with you. Yeah. Do you work with them much anymore? Not as much. I mean, recently I've been having to go back and forth to Puerto Rico to work with some of my own horses, some of my dad's horses, and that same situation that I told you. Actually, you know, uh, the past probably year I have to go back and and treat three um, laminitic horses and one we lost because she was too far beyond you know where we had to do tenotomy and and uh, but she was pretty sick she didn't die from the laminitis but she died from being extremely sick um, and the other ones that I have gone down there same thing they were just laminitis and we were fortunate enough to be able to get it get them back back on just just with therapeutic shoeing but yeah if i go to puerto rico it's mainly just to uh, work with my parents horses and treat the issues that he's having with the laminitis you kind of have this serendipitous moment of getting the chance to hold horses for for scott and uh i guess what what do you think was that trigger what what were you seeing when you're breaking down his work that's what were you interested in before podiatry i wanted to be an equine surgeon but the thing is, I wanted to work into a very, everything, anything that I decided I wanted to do, if it was going to be podiatry, if it was going to be surgery, I wanted to do it to the highest level. I, I, I have really high expectations on myself. And I always feel like I just want to be fair. 
to whatever I do to represent the industry in the right way. So I realized that if I wanted to be uh, at the level that the surgeons at Root and Riddle work with, it's a very tough life to have a balance because you're on call all the time. And so I decided not to go that route, but mainly I was just shocked the improvement or the impact that that Scott was able to have on, on rehabbing those horses. And, and I just thought that I had a call for it because my entire life I, I, I was treating horses that I ended up having to euthanize because there's nothing was done to them. We, we had to bury them and everything. And so to me, that was just something shocking that, you know, I could actually save this horse's life, work on these horses and, and actually horses on the edge of being euthanized or not only euthanized, but the last thing I wanted to see is see a horse suffer. So there's a lot of gratification when you're able to uh, look at a horse's eye and, and he's miserable and, and, and you start working with him and then then you, you look at a, that horse's eye and there's a spark on them and, and they, they, they suddenly not suffering anymore. And, and to me, that meant a lot. And to, to be able to help the horse I mean, I have very um, deep passion for the well-being of the horse. And sometimes I tell people I get better, uh, I get along better with horses than with, with people. It's just one of those things that when you can feel that you can talk to a horse or, you know, have some sort of kind of connection with the horses and that not only you're able to take them out of their misery and, and, and give them another chance not to be comfortable, but to have a really good quality of life. And that that was just the factor that completely just decided that I was gonna switch gears with my path and my career about being a veterinarian. I knew I wanna be an equine veterinarian, which it was the hardest thing for me in school because I had to do vet school just to be an equine vet, but I had to do the small animal and do everything when I wasn't very keen about that. But um, obviously, part of the program you have to do everything but that was the thing like I said I wanted to be a, an equine vet and, and started with the path of you know thinking you're gonna do surgery and, and the thing was you know I wanted to be a surgeon because again you know you have a horse that is suffering of something let's say colic or a fracture and as a surgeon I was going to be able to help him out but then I saw the need for for the podiatry aspect of it and, and not the need on the demand per se, because that's what I'm not talking about, the need to uh, save a horse's life. And, and that's why I decided that that was my call. And I just decided to go that path. And I still work on it on a daily basis. I mean, I, I don't think I know it all. I feel like I learn every day about the horses. And I strive to better myself on a daily basis when it comes to, to podiatry and, and, and to, to what I do. I think a lot of what we can talk about here is that dual role you have farrier and veterinarian uh let's go back to to cornell and, and working under mike and, and learning from him it's a different culture than the clinical setting even though you are at cornell but very traditional program uh, what, what was it like during those days it's probably one of the best decisions that i have made was to go with mike at cornell because you know, they say Cornell Ferrier School, so you think you're going to go to a school setting. You think you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to study anatomy. I mean, things that I have already done in vet school. So I was slightly concerned with that part. But me and Mike have talked about my application and he kind of briefly uh, explained it to me how it was going to be when I was going to do the course. And the course actually turned out to be 
great for me as well too because he was only at that moment taking four students and when I applied he decided to take only two students so it was more of a one-to-one uh, teaching and it wasn't nothing like a school setting it wasn't like Mike was going to sit you down and ask you to read a chapter or give you a test or stand in front of you and swing the hammer and, and show you how you're supposed to sure it was nothing like that uh, what the the the, the program that Mike or the setting that he had was, uh, I don't know if you know Mike Wildenstein, but he's a, a extremely professional, but extremely laid back. And, and uh, what he had was he just had a schedule for every day. He has courses that comes to for him to, to be shooing. And basically it was more of, a, of another apprenticeship. You pull shoes for him and, and you clinch for him. And you might clean shoes for him and this and that, but um, you had the chance to to ask him questions. That's when you started learning from it. And then he was so handy that when he came into the forging skills, all he did was he would just do a demo for, for the students. He would just pick up a shoe. We have a shoe board that there were 16 shoes and 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 you had by the end of the courses you were you were supposed to turn in all those 16 shoes so he'll pick up a shoe and he'll just forge it and he, but he will only show it to you once and he would not stand while you're practicing to make the shoes he would not stand by you until you're doing this right so it was more of a i realized that i had to teach myself with the knowledge of you know, a lot of times I, you know, I tell my students or, or, or the guys that come with me, it's like, I'm not going to hold your hand. I'm not going to tell you step by step how to do things. you got to open your eyes, listen a lot and, and watch, you know, what we're doing. And, and you have to learn it yourself. I have always tell people it's kind of hard to teach somebody how to shoe horses because it has to be in that person as well that they want to learn how to shoe horses because... I have a lot of people that say, hey, I want to shoe horses and I want to learn how to shoe horses. But they're expecting the whole time that you have to walk them step by step or it has to be like reading a book where things have to be done exactly this way. And we all know as, as fairs and veterinarian, that's not the case with horses. You have to improvise and change. But that was one of the best things with, with Mike because then I realized right off the bat, okay, here I am that with another opportunity to work under somebody learn from him, watch him what he was doing, not only what he was doing with the horses, how he was um, uh, taking care of his business. You know and what I mean with this business is just how he was dealing with the clients, how he was talking to the clients, how he was approaching to the horses, how, how his manners around the horses, how he was interacting with other fairs that came into the shop because they were wanting to see how he was shooting those horses. Uh, how he interact with the vet school because the Cornell Ferry School is associated with, with the vet school as well. So we had the opportunities besides uh, his regular shoeing schedule, which I say regular, but, you know, obviously he was getting horses that had issues. But we also work with the vet school as well. So we, I had that opportunity that, that I had previously in the hospital and I was able to see another hospital with another fair and see how that was working out for him, you know. We used to, you know, as simple as, as taking shoes for, for the horses that were going to the treadmills, but, you know, putting things for contralateral limb laminitis. We did a lot of those ones. Um, there was a lot of cases where they had uh, foot surgeries like sequestrums, keratomas, whatever it was uh, foot related. 
uh, Mike and, and the students had to go to the university and take care of those ones. So it was the total package. I mean, it was, you know, I was very sad to see Mike go. I mean, I'm glad that Steve took over because Steve was uh, somebody that used to come by the shop a lot and hang out with, with us, the students, and, and with Mike as well. And and I think that's why Steve, Steve fall into that position because, you know, he was already kind of part mm -hmm. of that part of that program you know he was a a, a usual uh visitor from from the ferry school so i don't regret at all you know being able to spend time with with mike wundenstein yeah no and uh, the exposure to that and you know seeing scott's work and then seeing another farrier's work you touched on it a little bit but you know here you are you know thinking first you're going into surgery then podiatry then now getting the complete view of what the farrier's role is and, mm -hmm. and really getting into the details. I mean, it must have been eye-opening working under both of them. Yeah, and, and, you know, and I still do that almost, I try to do that on a daily basis, you know. I get a lot of people that travels or wants to ride along, and it, I always say that it as a joke, but I mean it in a true meaning because even from my interns, my associates, my farriers, and you know, I say my, but it, it's a team that what we have in there, and I learn from them as much as they learn from me. And I try to do it almost to, you know, every time I get a chance to, to ride along with somebody, to watch somebody work, I mean, I'm just I'm just like an eagle watching all of them. You know, I was with Mike, you know, I had the chance to go to Europe and, 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 and help out like, you know, Rob Rainier and then, you know, with Aaron in Switzerland. I've been back in Switzerland a few times with, with Estefan as well, with everybody in the industry. I, when I started going to Florida as well, I was able to, you know, hang out with Drew and with James. And, and you know, I try to hang out with as many of the people in the industry because you're always, always picking up something. Um, yeah. And it was it was the, the the main thing is always going to the back to the foundation, going back to the basics. And that's that was the whole idea of the process of what I was trying to go through my path and my career was, you know, OK, I can go at, as as the high level therapeutic or type of cases. But I also would like to go to the basics and the foundations and to the. The, the regular, just what we, we you would think simple shoeing, uh, even though I don't think any shoeing is simple, but um, I, I try to be uh, as broad and as general and, and like I said earlier, as fair as possible to the industry because, you know, I, I extremely value the, the fares. I mean, I, I shoe horses as well, so I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to, you know, I, I have a full schedule and inclines and, and, you know, the, it's just not shooting the horse. It's, it's a lot bigger than that. It's, I always say it, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's a, it's a very tough lifestyle. So, and I listen to a lot of the older generation fairies, um, because they're the model of, you know, you'll see a lot of young practitioners. And when I say practitioners, obviously including the fairies as well. But uh, they're, you know, everybody is extremely passionate about it. They're gun hose about it. But there's a lot of them that due to that don't last. And so I pay attention to a lot of the people that have done it for a long time because they're the proof of, of they have the formula to, to last for, for that long. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I don't see myself being 74, 75 years old and still being shooting horses like you know, Dr. Ren's still doing it. I mean, this guy is 74, 75 years old and he still get on their horses. And, you know, you got George Fitzgerald, you got Terry, you got, 
you know, you got Drew. I mean, I'm not saying they're old, but I'm saying they're older than some of us. And uh, they're still doing it. So those are the people that I really look up to. Yeah, the, the difference of wanting to continue to shoot versus having to. Because those, those are all successful, but there's a passion in there. And the drive and what, what you talk about a lot, the constant evaluation of your own work. And you, you brought up Doc Redden. All these names, they're not all homogenous in the way they approach shoeing. Yeah, shoers always have different opinions, but you have this really broad approach to who you want to learn from. And, and that's the thing. I mean, and that I tell everybody that wants to or, or that rides along with me or that shoe horses and, and everybody will agree. I mean, you have to try to spend as much time as possible with as many of them because it's not like you're going to exactly shoe like them, but you're going to make your own shoeing style or skill or approach based on the things that you have learned from all of them. So I think that to me was very important that I was as as um, as general to ride along with to your local guy in town that is just trimming to the guy that is shooting your backyard horses to the guy that is shooting your sport horses. And when I mean sport horses, I mean there's a big, uh, broad spectrum with that. When you, you're talking about dressage, you're talking about jumping, you're talking about hunter jumpers you're talking about you know if you talk about quarter horses you know you you can go and through the list i mean you have the rainers you have you know the western pleasure you have the equitation and and they all have different you know obviously with different disciplines they all have different shoeing styles different uh approaches different applications different uh injuries and and based on all that I felt that it was extremely important that I spend as much as time with all of them and then take little pieces of the puzzle here and there so I can make my own my own roadmap. So, you know, we're here at, in Saratoga Springs at the 2019 Northeast Association of Equine Practitioners meeting. You're the president of the association. Um, and there's always uh, some discussion of vet farrier relationships. So maybe let, let's look at it from kind of a middle ground of, of where do you see those relationships break down mostly when, when they do occur? I mean, it's something that we work on a daily basis and try to better. And, 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 and that's, wanna, that's the, the main goal and the mission statement for the, for the NEAP. Uh, let's be honest and, and be realistic as well. We still struggle with that on, on a daily basis. And what I mean with that is for some reason, there is there is a break in the in the communication. And I'll give you a couple of scenarios. And, and I don't, I'm not picking or choosing on, on anybody, but you'll have the veterinarians that go through vet school. And, and unfortunately, there's there's not any programs when it comes into podiatry or anything like that. So then you have young veterinarians that come out of school and and we have this perception that they're the ones that, you know, obviously they're going to take the, the radiograph and the diagnostic, but that there are the ones that are supposed to dictate um, how the horse is going to be shot. And um, that's okay to some extent if you're quite proficient or you have experience or you have the knowledge or the expertise. But um, like I said, you know, let's be honest and realistic. There's a lot of vets that don't. I mean, they don't teach you that in school. So sometimes you don't, you don't know as much as you think you know. And, and I think that's when a lot of times uh, 
we have we have that gap in in between the veteran and the farriers because there's a lot of farriers that are are very knowledgeable. Uh, the ferry industry has worked tireless about you know educating the farriers. So you have a lot of farriers that are actually quite well educated. And again, I'm not to pick anybody. I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm. But you know, there's sometimes that the farriers know more than than the vets. And and if you ask me. That's something that has to change because, you know, the whole thing about uh, coming up with a prescription of the how to shoot the horse and, and I have said it many times because I made that, that, that mistake myself. But we, we have to start approaching this, this farriers as, as they are. They're, they're professionals. It's a profession. They're practitioners. They know what they're doing, or at least they're supposed to be knowing what they're doing. So, I think that that as vets we have to to respect them like that, and you know, saying that vice versa goes the other way. You know, if you have uh, a, a failure that that it's not going through the continued education, that he hasn't go through the path, like an example that I was putting myself that out, so I can be fair for the industry of learning as much as possible. And then you have the vet that that requests some sort of kind of shooting, but the failure. Uh, doesn't doesn't there's a lot of failures that a lot of times that I have noticed and that they don't actually do the the job as a lifestyle they do it as a job uh, they don't do the work they they take it as a job so they they just slap a shoe here and there and and uh, those are the the times where we have troubles between between the vets and the farriers because you know you have the the vet requesting something and and then you'll have the farrier that either one doesn't know how to do it or two doesn't agree with the vet and doesn't do what the vet wants to do, and I think that that's the gap that we're having miscommunication. I think that it's so simple to try to talk. Um, Fairs, um, we all know they're you know strong, strong egos, um, and vets as well too. And and I think it's we have to step back and look at it and and not think about this is not about the fair, this is not about the vet, this is about the horse. And I think that's extremely important. And I I try to encourage vets and fairs to just leave their pride and their egos to aside and and work together and it, you know it depends with when the industry as well what you know where are you and and you know locations and you know who you work with because if you work with if you work with a vet that you work on a on a daily basis or regularly obviously you're going to have a good relationship with that vet but then if you're working and with multiple vets or this vet, vice versa if you're a vet that you're mo- working with multiple farriers that's when you start getting into a little bit of uh, the miscommunication. And I think it's just about relationships. And, and that's why we always, you know, encouraging or, or trying to tell people that we're trying to build that vet fair relationship. So if they have a good relationship, I can tell you that um, when it comes into the vet and affairs, they'll probably have communication and how to approach things. And we wouldn't have that many issues, I, I think, because... The other thing that we have to understand, we got to be careful how clients will put us in a position because clients tend to do that as well. So, you know, you'll have the client that will say, well, the vet said this and then, oh, no, the farrier said this. 
And and I think that's when we get into issues and that's when I try to take the middle person out of the relationship and I say, well, I'm just going to call the vet or I'm just going to call the failure and I'm going to have that communication so we can clear things out, talk about it and come up with a plan. Um, and, I, and I've seen some of those scenarios as well where 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 we avoid try to have that communication, direct communication uh, with the vet or the farrier, and we just rely on what the client is telling us that they're saying. And again, it's just misunderstanding and miscommunication. And hopefully, with time, we can address that. I still think that we will have those issues because it's both ways. It's just not. It's just not the vet, or it's just not the farrier. I, I think that we're both at fault because again, schools are not teaching as much as we should when it comes into foot related. Um, anatomy, not necessarily anatomy, but pathology, understanding. And we all know that, you know, it's, it's, uh, when it comes to the veterinarian, you know, you know, hopefully he can bring, he or she can bring the, the knowledge when it comes into the anatomy and the pathology and the treatments and this and that. But we also have to understand that, uh, the horse is, it's a biomechanical animal. And when it comes into the foot, everything is related, related to, tendons and ligaments and loads and forces and ground reaction forces so it becomes a, a mechanical uh, structure as well and that's when their fare is extremely important because and I think that there's room for both you know you have the vet that will come up with with the knowledge about the anatomy and, and the pathology and, and the treatments and the diagnosis there's a lot of failures that understand the anatomy and all that kind of stuff because they obviously we have educate ourselves to to get to that point where we can communicate with, with veterinarians but they're the ones that are going to provide that approach when it comes to shoeing the horse so i think it's just more of a communication thing and hopefully the the industry keep working on it bottom line it just comes down to the horse it's um you know you need both you can't you can't save a horse's life just with one so when disagreements do happen you know again you can see this from both sides what advice do you have? Let's take farriers first. When you know you you have that discussion with the vet, and the vet says instead of addressing these principles, here's your prescription. I want this shoe used, and maybe it's something you're not comfortable with. Maybe it's something you disagree with. What's the best way to go about that discussion? I just think that um, you know, and I talk to vets and farriers about this all the time. I think that we just need to treat each other. As, as we are, and what I mean with that is they're two different professions, so we got to treat each other as professionals. We got to be respectful to each other. Um, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing about things that, you know, we all agree to disagree about things, but uh, I've, I've been shooting for 15 years, and, and I've made a lot of mistakes when it comes into the communication factor of it, and I think it's just a matter of, of try to try to communicate and talk and explain yourself why things work. I mean, like, or doesn't work. And, you know, why, like you were saying about, you know, the prescription, you know, I have completely changed my approach about that because now it's not about a specific way of doing it or, or a specific shoe of using. It's more of a principle. And I think that you are supposed to, you should actually let that farrier um, you know, you may, instead of giving him a prescription, just give him a principle of your goals or your ideas and let him as a professional decide what he thinks is best because he's going to use not only his knowledge, the information that was provided to him, but he's going to use 
what his skills and what he's comfortable with and the, the material he's comfortable with because a lot of times I think that's when we get into trouble because if you set somebody uh, and you set somebody uh, to do something he's uncomfortable with, you're setting that person for failure. And that's when we get into the bad relationship between the vets and the failures because obviously the failure doesn't and doesn't want to end up having to made a mistake or, or having a failure when it comes into his practice. And then he feels that it wasn't his fault because he was told that he was supposed to do it like that. So then he blames the, fa- the vet and then the vet blames the failure because the failure couldn't do what he wanted him to do. And I think that's why we have so many issues with it. So I think it's a matter of, of I don't know, looking at each other as a, as a professional, respecting each other, being able to, 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 like I said, take the middle person out of the conversation and, and just talk it out and, and, you know, like, like every young practitioner, just mature and grow. And, you know, I hate it when I was very young and a young practitioner and everybody was like, oh, you know, with, with experience, you'll find out with experience, you'll find out because I wanted to fast forward the whole thing. And I was like, well, I don't have the experience. I wanted to do it now. I want you to teach me to do it now so I don't have to make that mistake. And, and I think that with time, I have learned that there's some things that you can't just teach over there you the experience is what's going to teach you so i don't know i think that it comes down to to building up a a relationship or a communication um building up your knowledge and 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 with a continued education uh put both uh, bets and fairs on on the same on the same page so they can communicate with each other so they can respect each other is so they can treat each other as professional and I think there's that line where we, sh- you know, the fair shouldn't cross the line towards the vets and the vets shouldn't cross the line towards the, to, towards the fairs. And, and I think that we should just respect those, respect those boundaries. You know, and, and sometimes we have the, the owner get caught in the middle, but also uh, probably times not to exclude the owner, but it's not important to have the owner present. And like, let's take the time of the veterinary responsibility of diagnosis and then communicating that for, for treatment for the farrier. I guess, especially in your setting, where what input do you want the owner to have or how much do you want the owner to be present for in a discussion as the veterinarian talking to the farrier? That's a good question, Jeremy, because if you ask my my honest opinion on it, I think that I don't want I don't want to have much of the client's input at all. I have gotten to a point that I have gained the trust from my clients where they leave it up to us. And what I mean with that is, you know, the input of the client might just be, you know, the care of the horse. But when it comes into uh, what's wrong with the horse and, and, and what's our approach to the horse or the treatment or the shoeing, just leave it up to the professionals, leave it up to the vet and leave it up to the farrier. Um, because obviously both have good intentions to help your horse. And I think not picking up on the clients, but I think a lot of times the clients are are the devil's advocate of what puts us in a bad spot. You know, like I said, he said, she said, or not only that, you know, you as a, as a vet shouldn't just give the prescription to the owner and have the owner give it to the to the fair because I think that's when um, a lot of you know uh, scenarios where you set them up for failure I get this request a lot I mean I'll shoe a horse 
at the clinic and then I'll get, you know, a couple of days later, I'll get a call from the owner or I'll get an email from the owner and say, can you give me a prescription for the vet, the farrier to follow up on what you did? And I, I just don't do that no more. I said, you know, I have a phone. He has a phone. Um, have him give me a call. I'll be more than happy to talk to him because a lot of times I think that's when um, some of the miscommunication happen, you know, sample what kind of shoes or this or that. And it's it's easier for me to explain it to the farrier than explain it to the owner, because when the owner is going to explain it to the farrier, she probably can't communicate with that farrier the same way I would communicate with that farrier. I mean, the language is not the same. So a lot of the, the principles that we talked about with the owner, she's she or him, it's going to miss some of those ones and, and or translates those those uh, principles to the, the farrier. And they might not be the principles that I brought up. They might be what the client thought or understood and, and, and the principles or, or what the client wants for his horse. And that's when you get into trouble. And I, I don't know if we've talked about this yet or mentioned you're at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital and you're, you're based in the Lexington location there's also a location in New York and down in Florida is there ever a typical day in a clinical setting no there's 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 no typical day and then that's the fun part of it and I think that's that's for both I think that's for the vets and, and that's for the fairs as well I mean you don't know what you're going to get into um, you don't know what's going to come through the door and 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 that's the part that I like the the challenge of it. I mean, that's one of the things that I, why why I wanted to do podiatry as well because it's uh, it's very demanding in your body and you know you got to stay in shape and I want to last a long time. So I, I said well, I'm going to do this because I'm going to stay in shape as well too. And but um, you really don't. There's no typical day. I mean, your phone rings and they might tell you, hey, you have a horse foundering or you have a horse that stepped on a nail or you have a horse that was a race had an abortion or there's a horse that is coming um, that that has navicular syndrome but it, like I just said it's just a syndrome so you don't know specifically what you're going to get into you don't know if you're going to deal with a with a jumper or a, or a dressage I mean so that's the part that I like it's because it's very challenging and because also you have to improvise and uh and, and it's something that I kind of talk to talk to my um the the guys that work with with me and, and the people that I work with because they're always asking oh what's for on for tomorrow what and my question my answer is like I don't know I mean whatever comes in we just got to deal with it I mean if it's a miniature horse we we'll deal with it if it's a draft horse we have to deal with it. oh but we don't have a shoe for it but that's what we do we improvise so we'll have to come up with a shoe and and that's that's the skills level of, of the fairs I mean so there's no typical, there's not even a typical day in the clinic at all. How much of your time is spent at the hospital versus out in the field? Uh, I would say 50-50. Being in Lexington, people at the farm don't expect that they're going to have to bring you every horse. You know, a lot of times in Lexington, you have to deal with thoroughbreds. So obviously with those ones, um, they expect you to go to the farms and, and, and work for them. But when then when you get into more of, of the spoil horses or the people that have to travel from far away obviously those are the ones that come to the shop and we work on the shop so locally we have to kind of drive around and, and work our farms and then pop in at the clinic and and take care of those uh, appointments as well so a little bit of both it's actually a really cool place if anybody can ever stop by and see uh can you, can you talk about the structure you know you mentioned the team and uh, uh 
sort of uh, talk about the podiatry department as a whole. So it's a, it's a very uh, busy, busy place. Um, and what I mean with that is, you know, we got Scott Morrison, myself, we got Craig Lesser, Scott Fleming, um, all veterinarians and, and fairs as well. And then you have all the fairs that we have as well. We got Stuart, we got Sam, we got Josh, we got Ben, we got um, who else is amazing, uh, Remington. I mean, uh, we got Mike. So it's, it's a lot of us because... Um, you know, we have, we have the, the, the cases at the clinic with, you know, we have so many veterinarians at the clinic. We have around 50 veterinarians in our clinic. So you have 50 people, uh, doing lameness exams or looking at horses and coming up with foot related problems. And, you know, we, we have to tackle that. So it's a very busy place and, 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 and constantly moving. It's quite interesting. I mean, you see, Everything from the most basic, normal thing. I mean, a horse might just come in for a trim or we might have to just trim a horse to 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 the whole spectrum. We, we deal with babies, you know, we deal with foals and, and, and flexural deformities, angular deformities, since we see the entire package from 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 a newborn to a, to a weanling, to a yearling, to to the broomer, to the racehorse. Um, and then to the sport horses as well, to the backyard. I mean, um, we got to do it all. So it's a, it's a pretty busy place. And uh, I encourage anybody, we, we always have open doors. Um, we share, we share our, our clinic with everybody. We share, you know, our, our experience and expertise. Um, we allow, you know, any vets or fairs that want to come through. And um, we always have open doors for everybody. Yeah, I'm sure too. You know, there's there's cases you guys are going to manage, and and owners are just going to manage uh, the horse for a long period, maybe of their entire ownership of it. But you're probably getting in cases that you work on, and then need to turn back over or want and to turn over. Uh, that's the, that. and that's my goal. I mean, and yeah. that's um, you know that's all of us goal. It's it's not, and and that's the difference between you know our. You know, being in a clinical scenario, being at the clinic, it's not like you have a schedule where you routinely do this horse every five and six weeks. I mean, yeah, sometimes we we we're obligated or forced to do it with the local with the local horses and the local farms, but more than anything else is just dealing with the foot related lameness or the lame horse and when 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 that horse gets over the hump or does better or their failure feels comfortable of taking it over uh, i mean my main goal is is to transition that that horse to their regular failure and that's why i have always been so big about the relationship because that's been my entire career it's not like I'm just shooting horses by myself, and you know, like I own my own skid, and I have I don't have to worry about anybody else. That's not the case. My case is always, you know, having to deal with a horse that I'm not gonna be able to keep on the schedule forever because I'm gonna have to transition that horse to somebody else. So I'm constantly communicating with different farriers, different vets, and and try to make that transition as smooth as possible. There's a lot of times they come and go, um, you know, and and there's a lot of farriers that actually have. Uh, going through the process and, and actually uh, seeing the benefit of it because what they have done is, you know, and there's there's some horses that come in because, let's say, you know, a scenario, their ferry couldn't fix it, so they want us to fix it. But that's not the case 
all of the time. We also have good relationship with fairs when they say, you know what, Raul, I mean, I've been working on this horse and I've been trying so many of the things that, you know, I know this and that, but I can't get them right. I'm going to send them to the clinic. Hopefully you can come up with something and you get them right. And after I get them right, then I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to make that transition back to the fair. So to me, the relationship with, with fairs is being very important because Uh, you know, I always say, that, you know, that the, the only bad thing being in a clinical scenario is, is that our job is not secure because I don't know how long I'm going to have to be doing that horse. That horse is eventually going to have to go um, or I'm not. You know, my job is to, as a veterinarian, my job is to work on lame horses and get the horse on a, on a, on a better, you know, sound or sound or back to performing. So my job is not to do normal horses that doesn't have any foot-related lameness. That's not my job. So let's say, you know, take a case and you get it back to at least that, that optimum level of performance where you're going to turn it back over. What information do you want to give? What, what do you do to ensure that farrier who's taking that horse back is going to be successful in managing it? A lot of times I just basically go through the process with the farrier. What he went through before I saw the horse what I went through when I was working with the horse, what kind of things I had to change. So it's more not just the specific of exactly what I did, it was more of the process of getting from point A to point B. Because a lot of times you're not fixing entirely the horse. And what I mean with that, you're maintaining the horse, uh, which is a lot of, a lot of the foot related problems is Not necessarily that you fix the horse and he's done forever and he's going to be fine. You're going to have to maintain whatever issue he's having on his foot. So it's just more of a process of how, you know, the foot is constantly evolving. Uh, so the fairy has to constantly evolve with whatever changes that foot is going through. And uh, I've been lucky enough to work with some of the farriers that what we have done is that You know, they'll transition the horse to them and, and the horse is doing okay and the fairy wants to make sure that he's doing fine. So he said to the owner or to the client, oh, let's just send back the horse to Raul and, and, and have him look at him again and, and see if I'm going on the right track. And, and actually works for, for the benefit of, of all of us. You know, for me, uh, having a good relationship with the farrier. Um, for the farrier and me as well that I can uh, share my experience and my knowledge with that farrier and vice versa. There's a lot of times that they give me ideas of, of how to approach some of the cases that they have been working, what's not working for them, what's working, that what hasn't not worked for them as well too. So uh, I, I think it's just, uh, it's something that it's, it's constantly evolving and, and just building relationships. You know, one of the neat things people can see when they visit visit your shop is there's all kinds of different ideas you guys use a lot of different modalities what's something interesting you've seen lately or, or a new idea that you've seen oh lately lately i've been um my my principles when it comes to to shoeing and obviously i'm not necessarily talking about uh shoeing the sound horse i'm talking about shoeing the lame horse that are having some sort of kind of pathology but i mentioned it briefly but it's going Going back to the the the, me the mechanical aspect of of the foot, the function of the foot, the mechanical aspect of the limb, the horse, the movement, and what I mean with that is, you know, that whole those words about static versus dynamic. You know, when when you read the books and, and they throw you lines and everything has to be 
proportional and symmetrical and drop a plumb line here. And I have realized that that horses don't read the books. I don't know where they got those pictures, but I mean, it's just not necessarily like that. Nothing's proportional, nothing's symmetrical. We try to, we strive to do that, but answering your question and my approach to the foot is more of a mechanical one now it's more of a dynamic um, i'm taking in consideration not only when the horse is standing in front of me in a cross tie because that's what's not when he's not performing uh it's more of what the horse does and and, and the environment and the care and the discipline and and the, the angles and, and the conformation and and i try to have the same principle for every horse with that biomechanical formula uh, in mind, taking in consideration, you know, the tendons, the ligaments, the loads, the joints, the, the, the break over, the, the motion and the dynamic of that horse. And so I've been having trouble to have something in specific um, uh, when it comes to shoeing because you, it's just about the principle. I mean, interesting wise, the most interesting thing that I have done in the clinic with you know, with, with, with Scott as well, it's not something that everybody does, but, um, and, and not that I'd recommend it to anybody because it's case selection and all that, but we still have a, a Philly that we have a prosthetic limb where we did an amputation and, and, um, that's been extremely challenging. Um, it has taught us a lot. Um, not something that I will recommend to any client or any horse. I mean, it has to be the right client. It has to be, the right horse and you have to again keep in mind do the the right thing for the horse it's not like i want to just do an amputation because i wanted to have the checklist on on, on my to do things but um that's that's being the biggest thing i mean and and again uh my my biggest thing is just taking a horse from 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 pain and misery to to a good quality of life and i, I go to sleep with a big smile on my face when i when I have horses like that. So I don't have anything specific, I, just more of, you know, the challenge of, hey, bring me, I tell people all the time, it's like, don't bring me a sound horse because I might make him lame, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just bring me a lame horse because um, I would like to take the challenge to get him right. Yeah. So it just, it's just a whole challenging thing. So is, is a final question, you, you've talked about getting out, learning from others uh, that, you know, at Root and Riddle, there's there's never a, a dull day, number one, and there's never a, a replicated day. But there's still the challenge of helping horses and feeling whether or not you actually are, are helping. And, and a lot of times, I don't think it matters whether you're a veterinarian or farrier, it can result in burning out. Yes. You know, is, is it what you're doing right now and, and keeping that open mind, always thinking about what you're doing, how you avoid it, or, or what's, what's your advice my advice is, uh, and it's it's uh, something that I've actually been dealing with and it, being able to have a balance um, because I have burned out before and it's not a good feeling when you have to jump in the car and you got to go to work because you feel like it's an obligation because you're forced to go and shoe a horse because then it becomes a job. It doesn't become your lifestyle. Um, and and, 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 and and I'm being very careful with the lifestyle part because that doesn't mean you have to spend your entire life and doing everything with shoeing horses. You have to have a balance um, because otherwise you'll burn out so much that you don't want to shoe more horses and uh, you lose that passion. And I've been in that position and that's why I was talking about 
you know, the older generation people is like, how come you have lasted this long? Uh, where, where the job is extremely hard, not physically only because it's, you know, injuries that we get into, but how dangerous our job is and, and then how stressful it is to, to deal with clients because, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but in the situation that we are, we're constantly dealing with problems. We're constantly dealing with, you know, uh, complaints and, and issues. And our job is to come with a solution for it. So when you start overdoing it and getting burnt out, uh, you, you, you find out yourself not bringing those, those solutions to the problems. You, you just basically add more problems to, to, to the issue. And I just have been trying to force myself to slow down, um, spend as much as time that the horse requires to, to get him done. And what I mean with that is, uh, you know, like I said, I look into one of my mentors and, you know, Dr. Uh, Rick Redden told me all the time and he's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a, the next appointment waiting for you or you're two hours behind. It's not fair if you just rush this horse because you have to get to the next one. And and that's when you get into the burnout because you, you start just doing things for the sake of doing it and not for for their passion. You're just doing it so you, you can check out the numbers and, oh, I got to do six or ten horses so I can collect my money. And I always tell people all the time is don't chase the numbers. They will chase you and do you do a good job. So it's it's going back into have a, a love for what you do, a passion for what you do, and and, and not do it just for the sake of, of checking out numbers and and it's something that i've been seeing in the industry a lot and with with the young practitioners not only vets but as farriers as well i have good friends of mine extremely well um, known farriers with a full book i mean um you know a schedule that other farriers will die for and and be jealous of and uh get so burnt out um, not only for the job but dealing with the stress of the clients and and all the other things that goes with with the industry that it's just not necessarily, if it was just shooting the horse, that's the fun part of it. But we have to deal with the schedule, with the problems, with the business, with the expenses, with the, with the injuries, with, with, with all those things that comes with it. And I, I've seen many of these practitioners actually just throw the towel and walk away. And uh, that's why, you know, I was here at the meeting and, you know, I spent time with George and Terry and, and, and the older generation is like, what did you do to, to last this long? And the main thing that they always tell me is you have to have a balance. Otherwise, not only you won't last that long, but you might lose your marriage. You might lose your wife. Uh, you're not going to be there for your kids. And, and for those that have wives and kids, and I mean, I have a wife and a kid and I, I force myself to, to have that balance in life because, um, not only you get burnt out and then you don't want to do the horses, but since you were overdoing it, then you lost your relationship with your with your wife or husband. And, and you lost, you know, the years that you have with your children or not only that. But if you have a pastime or, or hobbies, I mean, I encourage everybody to do that because I'll guarantee you that if you do that, you do a better job. I'd like to thank Raul Bross for joining us and sharing his life story. I'd also like to thank Misty Plinas for sharing some great business advice. And thank you to Horselink for sponsoring this episode. And I'd like to thank you for listening. In our next episode, 
We'll chat with farrier Travis Burns about his career in foot care and what's going on with the American Farriers Association. Until then, thanks for listening.